transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow Pistachio, just unnatural, dog is off sabbatical, rather watch an exigent, politician, politics, CNN and all Guanyo, move with the fuck up, Trump and an SNL hilarity, trouble sometimes, kid, no Protesters at Sacramento International Airport, courtesy of the Sacramento Bee, on January 29th, two days after President Donald Trump signed Executive Order 13769, entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, in what the Commander-in-Chief, then just nine days into his presidency, himself referred to as a, as a travel ban. The executive order barred visitors from seven nations, later shortened to six following blowback from Iraqis who, under the order, would not have been permitted to visit the country with whom many of their citizens had been allies on the battlefield, or translators supporting America's stated purpose of bringing democracy to the region. To the relief of foreign nationals and immigrants' rights supporters alike, a less prohibitive version of the ban issued on March 6th, Executive Order 13780, entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorists' Entry into the United States, like the original travel ban, was struck down in the federal appeals courts. Specifically, the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which back in May ruled the travel ban 2.0, also referred to by the president as a Muslim ban, on the campaign trail was unconstitutional back in May. The 10-3 ruling, which contained a stinging rebuke of not just the order itself, but President Trump's comments on it, uh, read, the evidence in the record viewed from the standpoint of the reasonable observer creates a compelling case that the executive order's primary purpose is religious. Then candidate Trump's campaign statements reveal that on numerous occasions he expressed anti-Muslim sentiment as well as in his intent if elected to ban Muslims from the United States, end quote. The decision did little to deter the president from speaking out about the legal holdup for his travel ban, tweeting on June 5th, that's right, we need a travel ban for certain dangerous countries, not some politically correct term that won't help us protect our people. And last Monday, in their last day of the session, the Supreme Court, which regained its conservative majority back in April with a swearing in of the president's Supreme Court pick, Justice Neil Gorsuch, removed several aspects of the stay which the lower court had placed on the order until they are able to hear legal arguments when the court resumes its activities in the fall. Most notably, travelers coming to the U.S. from the six countries involved in the travel ban, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, must now have what the justices referred to as, quote, a credible claim of a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. So did the ruling cause a week of similar protest? Has the resistance mobilized now that we are once again two days out from the executive order going into effect? Well, here's Sacramento International Airport earlier this afternoon. 
Bassinger, Cran, Hudson, Carlso, Smith, Taylor, and Wong. Please make your way to gate four for final boarding. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. So why hasn't this new Muslim ban or travel ban or whatever you'd like to call it provoked the same sort of response that we saw back in January with so many often unactivated folks taking to the streets? And is it even fair or realistic for the left to expect the judiciary branch to be the safeguard for the Donald Trump agenda in, in general? My guest is... Diala Shamis, a lecturer in law and supervising attorney at Stanford Law School's International Human Rights Clinic, doesn't think it is. She writes in her article, Lawyers Alone Can't Save Us from Trump, quote, in the days after President Trump issued his travel ban in late January, lawyers became a bit like superheroes. I was among the many attorneys working at San Francisco International Airport in the wake of the executive order that was widely known as the Muslim ban. And I recall the moment the crowd began cheering the attorneys on call, hailing us as saviors. While the goodwill was generous, it also seemed to foreshadow a dangerous tendency to rely on the courts and lawyers to act as a balance to our new administration's executive power. In addition to what the Supreme Court decision will mean in the immediate term for people coming to America from the six countries included in the travel ban, Professor Shamus believes it is a poignant reminder of why it is dangerous to put the goals of the resistance in the hands of lawyers. We spoke yesterday. Here to help unpack what Monday's Supreme Court decision will mean for U.S. immigration policy and why she believes it proves why it is unreasonable to expect lawyers to be the primary prevention mechanism during the Trump administration is Diala Shamas, a lecturer in law and a supervising attorney at Stanford Law School's International Human Rights Clinic, who has extensive experience working with Muslim communities in the United States, as well as refugees stranded abroad. Her article, Lawyers Alone Can't Save Us from Trump, the Supreme Court Just Proved It, appeared in Tuesday's edition of the Washington Post. Hello, Diala. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. On Monday, as you report in your op-ed, the Supreme Court granted a stay and issued an order of uh, certiorari on President Trump's travel ban, previously blocked by the Federal Court of Appeals, in other words, agreeing to hear the case when the judges reconvene in September. But they also allowed certain aspects of Trump's travel ban to stand. Can you talk a bit about the Supreme Court ruling and what it will mean for U.S. immigration policy this summer? Absolutely. So um, the Supreme Court basically agreed to hear the case, and um, until then it lifted significant parts of the stay that had been placed on the ban by um, by lower courts, um, also federal courts who had um, you know issued put that stay in place. Um, significantly, they did say that the ban could not be imposed on anyone who had a credible claim of a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. So moving forward, if you don't want to be subjected to the ban, you will need to make that showing um, of what is a bona fide relationship. And that, I expect, is going to be the subject of a lot of uh, litigation in courts 
um, as we define what the contours of that kind of relationship are. It's a very new term um, in immigration law. It doesn't really show up um, anywhere in uh, as a sort of distinguishing factor. So um, we're likely to see quite a bit of back and forth on that question. Right. You write about the problematic nature of the court's distinction of only letting those from the six countries on the ban, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, uh, who have, as you say, bona fide ties to the U.S., quote, under any definition, the language reveals a move towards U.S. isolationism and unilateralism and away from a fundamental principle of the international legal system. The premise of refugee law and asylum law is that we should be taking in precisely those people who may lack the bona fides laid out in the court, unquote. Um, can you talk a bit about why you believe this bona fide tie stipulation violates international legal norms? So the basic idea of refugee law is that we um, will hear the case and the claims of somebody, especially the most vulnerable people. We don't have a prerequisite of a pre-existing relationship with the receiving country. Um, we have other visas that are available for people with those kinds of relationships. But really, you know, refugees are not expected to make that showing. Now, of course, technically, I do believe that someone with um, uh, you know, many, many refugees may actually succeed in making that showing because, um, as I'm sure their lawyers will argue, uh, resettlement agencies are U.S.-based institutions, and they will the, their relationship with their individual refugee is probably sufficient to be to to be that tie. But I'm kind of stepping back a little bit more and just questioning why we've introduced this concept in the first place. I I do think it's very problematic um, because we now put the onus on refugees to, to try to establish a relationship. Um, and that is a move away from from uh, this idea that the international order does depend on, you know, us not turning away people who who um, can make a valid refugee claim, regardless of their pre-existing relationship. To pivot to the central idea of your piece, what is it, uh, that's the piece that was in the Washington Post on Tuesday, what is it about this Supreme Court decision that you believe proves the danger in relying too much on the judiciary branch of the government to be a check on the president's power? Well, I start by really, this is something I've been thinking about a lot since, um, you know, those days in January, we were all at the airports and there was this unprecedented um show of, of support for the communities that have been the most targeted by the Trump administration's rhetoric, right? At the airports, we all remember when um, everyone just kind of flooded to the airports, um, shouting, let them in, and really uh, opposing these policies in very real, concrete ways. And that was the beginning of, of some political organizing that we hadn't seen for a very long time. And it followed the, the, the Women's March. And then I was among the many lawyers who were at these airports, um, you know, seeing what I could do to, 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 to help and was sort of surprised by how quickly um, people just kind of looked to us for guidance and that we had some kind of expertise that would be allowed, uh, able to save the day. At one point, there was this deeply uncomfortable moment where um, – People started chanting and cheering for the attorneys in the room. Little did they know that we had no idea what our efforts would yield by the end of that day. So the the concern is that once lawyers step in, we have this very kind of technical 
way of addressing situations. The courts are not, even though obviously there's transparency in the courts, they're not really the sort of publicly accessible forums that we'd like them to be. And it, um, it, it, it makes, it specializes the questions and moves away from the momentum that we were building. I've worked with Muslim communities for a very long time, representing them on a range of issues, and I had not seen the kind of level of um, political solidarity that was expressed as I had in those immediate days after the travel ban. And I think that quickly went away and dissipated once um, people relied on the attorneys to kind of move the struggle forward through the courts. That's always a bit of a risk with uh, litigation. You know, we take things to the courts because... um, we think that's important, and obviously courts are, you know, f- fundamental to um, to to guaranteeing our rights. But you don't want you don't we we shouldn't put all of our chips in that basket. You mentioned your efforts at San Francisco International Airport back in January when Trump's first travel ban went into effect, uh, and the sort of massive protest efforts that and mobilization that we saw around the country at international airports uh, in most major cities. Do you think that the reason that we haven't seen, the reason you give in your article that people thought they would depend on the courts or that the lawyers will work this out, this is crazy, it can't stand in a court of law, do you think that's the only reason in play here of why, for example, we've seen very little uh, response in terms of the protest movement to the Supreme Court decision? Hmm. Well, I think that there are several things that are at play here. I mean, the, court, the, the, the decision just, you know, came down on Monday, and, and it's certainly um, not the end of the story. Like I said, we're going to be fighting this out in the courts for a while, and then um, it'll, it'll hear it again in the fall. But I think overall, we have a problem of burning out, and we're going to be facing that challenge throughout this administration. Um, and the kind of level of protests that we saw early on may not be sustainable in that same form. Um, I would say there are maybe two other things that are at play. One is um, a significant level of Islamophobia that we um, have you know, seen in this country um, really ramping up in the rhetoric of this administration. And, um, and that is something that you know, we we can't kind of really really deny, and and maybe uh, maybe tempering some of the you know the outrage around these kinds of um, executive actions. And then the other thing is refugee communities and the communities that are the most targeted by these um, by these policies are not politically powerful communities. They're politically marginalized communities, and um, it, it's. You know, getting people out in the streets and their support has definitely been one of the uh, really hardening aspects of that response. But the relationships, um, you know, we, we really need to, to make sure that we strengthen those relationships and strengthen that solidarity if we're going to be able to, to kind of sustain this, um, that level of, of um of organizing. You also write about your concern that this Supreme Court decision was a quote unquote per curiam decision, meaning it was issued on behalf of the full the full court, the full nine justices of the Supreme Court. Do you believe this could signify a move uh, towards a more prohibitive view of immigration among the nine justices? 
Well, I don't want to overstate, um, you know, what the decision really uh, means in light of the fact that it's uh, in many ways punting the important questions uh, further down the line. This is by no means a Trump victory uh, out now. It's it's just, um, you know, as I, as I noted in the article, important to to underscore that there is um, there is a shift here that is happening, and that the court's decision, um, you know, that all of the justices basically signed on to, does create this distinction and this requirement that being exempt from the ban requires a showing of a pre-existing bona fide relationship um, with the United States. It's new. It's um, it's it's surprising. It goes against you know, what I think are fundamental principles of um, the international system and, and certainly the, the, the refugee framework. Uh, I, I think there's still time and like and time will tell what, where the court ultimately lands on that. But the, the broader point that I'm making in the article is that we can't rely solely on the Supreme Court um, or the, the, you know, federal courts in general to, um, to, to be the only avenue of pushback. I think that so many of the victories that we have seen um, and so much of the, you know, the, just uh, those days at the airport when people were, be, were, were being released um, as we were chanting outside was not because lawyers were granted access to those to the to the to the customs and border you know area and and able to see their clients. It was because there were people outside chanting and screaming, right and that kind of political pressure needs to be sustained. And when, when it's no longer visible, when we entrust lawyers to lead the charge, um, we're not going to have politicians listen to us, and ultimately this is a political problem. As many legal pundits have pointed out, since the travel ban was only supposed to last for 90 days, it is possible the Supreme Court could simply vacate all rulings as being irrelevant on this executive order, which would have expired by then. How realistic do you believe that is, uh, considering President Trump could simply issue a new executive order exactly like the previous one? That's a very good question, and I guess that's the nature of of executive orders. Um, It also is besides the point in some ways. I think that because, um, you know, the, the, the president's going to respond to political pressures, um, we shouldn't sort of rely on the fact that this case might be mooted out soon or that the order might expire or um, that there might be some kind of technical legal solution uh, because this is just one iteration of a broader set of policies that um, the, 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 the Trump administration can put in place. And unless we understand this as, as part of a bundle of policies, right, that target um, refugees, that target immigrants, that target people from Muslim communities, that um, that also uh, target other communities of color in the United States, right, unless we really um, build that political momentum, we're going to be fighting this executive order now and then future forms of executive action and overreach in the future. Who do you think will most be affected by the Supreme Court ruling? Well, um, short, the most vulnerable people, right? People from these six countries um, who 
are not able to show a bona fide relationship with the United States. Um, however, that kind of becomes defined by the courts. And um, eventually, you know, regardless of what happens in the longer term, like the, 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 the people who are going to suffer the most are always the people who have the least political power. A Gallup poll from earlier this month shows the amount of Americans who believe Amer- immigration to the U.S. should be decreased is the same as it was before the presidential election, 35% of the country. Does it strike you as significant how close that number is to the president's approval ratings, uh, which have also lingered in the mid to upper 30s? Uh, to what extent do you believe uh, this is purely a political issue, the issue of immigration? Um, I think the issue of immigration is oftentimes, uh, you know, where these kinds of, well, I'll put it this way. Um, there's, you know, there's been a lot of fear mongering during the election season and uh, immigrants and people who are perceived as, out- as outsiders are the easiest targets. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that was a prominent part of the campaigning. And so it's no surprise that ultimately, uh, we we see the administration follow through on some of its um, kind of earlier campaign promises. These are easy targets. These are politically not powerful communities. Um, and that's really why it's so important to um, make sure that we support those communities. The president and his surrogates have repeatedly said that the ban is only temporary and simply a way to reassess our immigration policy in an effort to keep the country safe. What would your response to that be? Well, um, considering how prominent um, the the ban, or we calling the Muslim ban, was in the president's election, uh, it, it, you know, in the lead up to the elections, I I think that it's primarily not about keeping the country safe, but around um, you know political uh, maneuvering, and uh, I think that's also doesn't doesn't is is just not borne out by reality. I mean, we talk about the level of vetting that refugees have to actually go through um, to 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 even be resettled in the United States is is already extreme. Um, they have to go through registration, interview, um, and 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 vetting before they even are referred to resettlement to the United States. At which point they're then again interviewed and have extensive background checks, and then other levels of background checks, um, in addition to uh, you know case reviews by our regular you know immigration headquarters. So we have a very robust. Um, review process already in play before the ban was ever um, put into place. And the fact that the administration hasn't even really proposed anything different says a lot. So I, I would, you know, I'm very skeptical about claims that this is a, a necessary to kind of increase uh, the, the level of protection. It's ultimately, if you, if you speak to the experts and the people who've been involved in the refugee vetting process um, in, the, in really in the details and in, in doing it, um, you'll, you'll see that it already is very robust. And um, the, the, It's hard to find where you could get more extreme in the vetting, right? Right. And the administration hasn't really come forward with anything more, um, more extreme than a full-on ban to this point. Getting back to the 
main thrust of your piece, of your op-ed. If the judicial branch can't be the vital safeguard on the administration that many on the left wish it would be, what is the best way for American citizens to check the president's power on immigration, say? American citizens need to continue to put pressure on their elected officials um, or to even run run for office and really change the level of conversation, um, not just about immigrants and refugees, but, you know, about the sort of whole bundle of policies um, and the targeting of communities of color in the United States. I would... Uh, I, I, I think the courts have a lot of promise and the courts are going to be a vital part of the, the resistance to many of the, of the worst policies put forward by the Trump administration. But they certainly are not going to be the only avenue for resistance and certainly not the most important one. Uh, it's that that's not going to change. You know, maybe we'll have temporary pushback that, that you know, that, that we can pursue through the courts. But ultimately what we need is um, to to really transform the national conversation and um, so that we don't have, you know, a large portion of Americans that think that these kinds of immigration policies are okay and that we don't have a president who thinks he can score political points um, by passing an executive order like the one that he did. Because ultimately, that is what he's thinking about and that is um, that is what we need to be reckoning with as a nation. Finally, in the last minute or two that we have here, what kind of dialogue on immigration would you like to hear more of in the country right now? What aspects of this discussion do you feel have been absent in the national debate? I'd say reminding ourselves that this is a country of immigrants and that um, all of us in some way or another are descendants of immigrants um, and that nobody is entitled to this land more than someone else. And really um, basing our policies in facts and in reality and not in this wild rhetoric that we've been seeing kind of go unleashed in the past um, few months and years. There are many, many ways to have sound immigration policies that don't involve scapegoating entire segments of the world, entire countries, entire religions. And I would like to see a lot more of that. And I don't think that it's that far-fetched. Um, unfortunately, right now, that is not the level of national discussion that, that is underway. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Diala Shamas, a lecturer in law and a supervising attorney at Stanford Law School's International Human Rights Clinic, who has extensive experience working with Muslim communities in the United States, as well as refugees stranded abroad. Her article, Lawyers Alone Can't Save Us from Trump, the Supreme Court Just Proved It, appeared in Tuesday's edition of the Washington Post. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. I'm Jesse Lent. That's going to do it for this week. This show was engineered by Reggie Johnson. Special thanks to WPAI Program Director Tony Bates for the airport footage. Trump Watch with Jesse Len is available as a podcast. You can find all 31 episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stream or download the show at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai, or in the WBAI archives at wbai.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. 
Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Just done national. The dog is on sabbatical. Rather watch an intention. Politician, politician.